You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2309 North Broad Street. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. We have a proverb in Circle of Hope. We have proverbs and convictions, you know. There's proverbs in the Bible. There's a book called Proverbs. But you could have something else that is a proverb or proverbial that isn't uh, canonical, right? It doesn't have to be in the Bible to be a proverb. Anyway, we have a proverb. It says dialogue keeps us connected and protects our gravity, right? The whole thing that we're doing is rooted in a dialogue of love. So I hope to have some dialogue tonight. That's the, if we accomplish dialogue, we've fulfilled our purpose. Um, so this is an ask, oh good, so they don't sleep. The, um, this is ask me anything, and I'm the me. Um, but I hope that other people will be able to contribute too. Um, so you can really ask about anything, right? It doesn't have to even be like a Christian style question. It could be, I mean, you probably don't want to get too far off into like other um, matters. But like, I could probably go as far as like, uh, power tool recommendations. So this is a large, uh, so it's pretty extensive, you know. Um, but try, don't abuse, don't, don't abuse my uh, attention span, um, if you can help it. So that's, that's one thing. The other, uh, we'll, we'll tr- let's get as many questions in as we can. So I'm talking too long, tell me to stop, okay? Let's, let's, let's keep it going. Let's see how many we can get. And maybe someone can take notes about the questions being asked, so if they're interesting or need more development, we can find another forum to do that, maybe in a sermon or something that someone writes. Okay? Anyone want to volunteer to take notes? It's being I know, but I was hoping someone would take notes anyway. <laughs> yes? Trisha is going to take notes. <laughs> That's that. Thank you. Thank you for volunteering. <laughs> um, one more thing, normally, I don't recommend you do this, but there's a website called Reddit, and on that website, they have something called uh, Ask Me Anythings, AMAs, right? And experts, celebrities generally go on, and then you can ask them interesting questions about, uh, about whatever they uh, do. This isn't really like that, but... It's more about circle of hope. I'm not, I'm not that interesting or a celebrity. So it's based on that, but I'm not like, uh, you know, Bob Saget or someone like that. What? Temple. The Temple Connection. He's the one we can, you can't say Cosby anymore, so you say Bob Saget. He's, he's the other one we can talk about. What? Tina Fey's dad went? Yeah. Oh, that's great. I'll just say Tina Fey. His dad. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That helps. Huh, that's interesting. All right. So did you feel warmed up? We have a little bit of time here. Do you have a question? Did someone bring a question? Also, keep it edifying, right? You might want to ask a question that somebody else needs answered, you know. The goal isn't to stump me. Um, but you could try. Yeah, go ahead, Joyce. Um, yeah, I was wondering if you grew up in a Christian family, but if not, how you came to be. So my parents were born in Egypt. They uh, immigrated to the United States in 1982 and 19, 
1981 and 1982, they grew up in the Christian tradition. And they, they ended up being pretty kind of conservative, evangelical-style Christians. So I grew up with that faith. But in order for my faith to become my own, I had to, um, in part, uh, for my own um, differentiation, you might say, develop my own. It ended up being a little bit at odds with them. Um, but I kind of blame them for that in the sense that they, they gave, yeah, I blame my parents, because they assigned me or they, they taught me the values that I would eventually uh, internalize that would make me a little bit philosophically opposed to them. Like, you taught me to think this way, um, and now I do. I'm one of your disciples, but apparently you're not one of your own, right? So that's how, that's how it ended up working out for me. Um, I like that. Um, so th that, that's how I came to faith. Um, Moving to temple, temple territory, I went to temple too. Hey, maybe I can just say I went to temple. Um, <laughs> I furthered my faith too. And, and, and I moved right when uh, um, George Bush was bombing Iraq. And I was looking for a group of Christians that wasn't particularly interested in um, devastating the Middle East. And Circle of Hope was an elemental part of that for me. So that furthered kind of how I regained faith even. So I've had a journey, quite a journey in fact. There's more to that story, but we'll leave it at that. Thanks for the question. Johnny. Do you favor the electric chair or lethal injection? For what? For, for like capital punishment. Oh. And now I'm going to say I don't agree with the capital punishment. Right? He knows this guy. I've known this guy for like 15 years, so he's asking me like a... No, I... I, I, I uh, I actually have an, an answer to that question, but I'm not, I know you weren't actually asking it, right? <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, I mean, it was... <laughs> uh, no, I don't, I don't think we should be killing each other. I don't think Jesus' way is about capital punishment. I think Jesus submitted to the final uh, useful uh, end to capital punishment, right, in his, in his crucifixion. You know, the only meaningful one was Jesus's, and then what follows is a different thing, right? He died for all of us so that we might live, not kill each other, right? That's the movement that I'm going with. That's the narrative that I see clearly and evidently in the New Testament. Um, so that's kind of my idea. I also would wonder, should Christians even participate in that kind of thing too, right? Not just be opposed to it, but should our main goal be to think about the state and how to make the United States better? You know, that's an interesting uh, question, too. Someone else help me on Matt. Can you talk about um, what process or what was some of the dialogue that led us to the point of adding in the more recent um, proverbs around gender, orientation, um, sexuality, these types of things? So Matt's referring to a, a dialogue that's happened over years that has not culminated, because it's not done, but at least has resulted in some lore and some language in our, um, in our system being moved to a more prominent place so that we are more apparently affirming of LGBT people. That's what Matt's talking about there. That's the context. And then you're asking, how did we come to that place? The process really started in 2014 in two, just to give you a little American history, right? in 2008, Barack Obama was asked about his opinion on gay marriage. And even at that time in the United States, he said his view was evolving. 
right? And so the journey for the United States has been, and over the last 10 years, uh, pretty rapid in how we're moved. When we started talking about LGBT inclusion, gay marriage wasn't legal in Pennsylvania, though it eventually became legal, and then it became legal at the federal level too, right? But we decided um, this was not the, the the way the zeitgeist was moving, the way the culture was moving, this was not a hill to die on, so to speak. Like there are some convictions that we have that we would have to hold. We weren't even really opposed um, at that point. We just weren't very apparent about it. And so we decided to be apparent because it was costly to the mission. So it began with a missiological justification, although later became a biblical and a theological one too. Um, so there's a variety of ways to talk about the subject. Just from a missionary standpoint, it was similar to the issue uh, that Paul deals with in the Jerusalem Council, which was a circumcision was the big issue there. They were wondering, how can we include Gentiles into this new pseudo-Jewish style Christian thing we're doing when they can't adhere to all the rituals of Jewish people, including circumcision? You know, it, no... Most people aren't going to go with your movement if they need to get rid of their foreskin as an adult, right? That's, that, that's, this is the missiological dilemma. For the United States, and in this occasion, um, LGBT inclusion is a similar issue. And in fact, you could extend it further because the circumcision was a sign of God's covenant, and a lot of Christians say marriage is a sign of God's covenant too. But the um, aesthetics to it um, may have less meaning than the theology behind it. So how it looks now is different than how it could look then. So there's more biblical reasoning, too, that we can get into. Um, and this would be a good, uh, see, this is why we're writing down the questions, because this would be a good thing to go deeper into later. But just, just to answer your question, how we moved was, it was missionally, it was, it was um, missionally uh, very costly to maintain, to, to, to not be affirming. Um, and, that, and that's what it came down to, you know, it, it, we, and we didn't want to be that kind of place. And so um, it wasn't, it was uh, for the missionary in the United States in Philadelphia in 2018, it was a clear path for us. And relatively speaking, compared to other denominations and churches, I think we moved fairly rapidly without managing to divide the whole church in half, which was surprising. Um, you know, there was some loss, sure, sure, but not as cataclysmic as we've seen in other cases. You know, it wasn't the Southern Baptists not affirming, uh, not, not denying slavery, right? That caused the big schism in the Baptist church, for example, in, the, uh, uh, in, the, in a certain period of time, right? Didn't that happen? Well, let's see, that and how Southern Baptism became a thing. It's just a real deep cut of reference. Oh, yeah, sorry. Too, deep cut means too high context? Is that what that means? In the, 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 the Southern Baptist Convention exists because... They, they, because they wanted to hang on to the slaveholders, huh? Yeah, so we, we, I mean, I, and I wonder how the rest of the church will move on this, um, too. So we kind of, uh, that, that's how we ended up there. Um, and I had been in dialogue with a lot of gay people about, uh, about, the, about the matter at hand, and I was, my heart was moved to uh, be inclusive um, and not exclusive, because um, it's just, it's too costly. The, I don't think that Jesus, the movement of Jesus should be impeded in that way. Um, and I think God would ask us, you know, do you have a right to even do this, you know? What are you doing to the sheep here? So that, that, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of where we were. Does that help? I'm sure other people have that question, so that's a good one, Matt. Yeah. Get everyone, everyone had their hand up. Raise your hand. If you had your hand up at some point and weren't called on. Anyone else? 
All right, Charles, go ahead. Right, so to follow up with that question, uh, so you said you recently uh, basically said that you were affirming LGBT. So uh, how would you then respond to uh, people, maybe other denominations or people who perhaps would not necessarily, like as a whole church, you take a stance of inclusion, but perhaps there may be people who are not necessarily quite ready to move into an affirming position, either because they are non-affirming or because they're not necessarily sure how to move because this can actually be very contentious in the church, I believe, as we have seen throughout uh, probably, I would say the last 20 years, but probably a lot longer. So how would you perhaps... I don't know if I would say move, but seem to counsel somebody who's kind of in that place of I'm not necessarily sure where to land because I may not want to rock the boat within my own personal um, belief system or the belief systems of maybe other people who don't necessarily see affirming LGBT inclusion as uh, as a <coughs> as a way as the way of Jesus. Ecumenical dialogue is tricky, so I need to start with my motive, right? Am I trying to keep the peace with Christians that I don't really talk to much? In which case, I probably wouldn't say much. Is it in my family? Am I gay in my family trying to convince my parents of this? It's a difficult subject, you know, um, and there's a lot of paths there, none, none of which I will prescribe. Um, for me as a pastor trying to talk to someone who disagrees with me, who wants to be included in Circle of Hope, I would listen. I'd give them my reasoning and I'd have a dialogue with them. You know, these things take time for people to move on, you know. And until they could really lead, um, and, uh, if, until they could really understand our theology and lead with it, they would be limited in their capacity to serve. Um, because you have to kind of teach where we're going. You couldn't teach them a variant theology. You, despite how open we are, you know, and how anarchic our cells can be, um, you'd basically need to agree to lead, in a sense. But I would do it in dialogue, you know, and, and, and if you were uh, incorrigible and continued to go down your way uh, with impunity, um, well, well, I don't know, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I think you've got to find another church, you know. That, that's kind of where I would end up, especially if you were real aggressive about it. Like, that wouldn't really fly. So that, that's kind of how I would do it. So a few, a few different levels there and how I'm talking about it. But if I really do want to convince somebody or learn from them even, I would try to be as humble as I could um, without losing my assertiveness. So I wouldn't lose my edge uh, or my commitment to truth um, any more than I would lose my commitment to love. I'm in a position to do that more than some because of who I am, because of my experience, and I'm, I'm willing to kind of go to bat for you if that's what needs to happen. I don't necessarily expect everybody to do that because that dialogue itself can be a challenge and can be uh, very difficult. So people, people will journey as they need to, in my opinion, and I'm not very prescriptive about it. I have some strategy with certain things, though. Is that helpful? Yeah, I, I guess I'm just hoping that, uh, particularly in this conversation, that you know, it's something that we can have a conversation about and not necessarily where one side has to convince the other that they're right or wrong, as if their whole kind of faith is determined on whether they have a right argument. I think that's kind of what has sort of driven people away from the church, that even if they're in the church, they're driven them away from 
trying to kind of die more because personally for myself I sometimes feel as if I don't if I don't have the right answer to like a theological argument whatever that right answer is then you know it's uh, all of a sudden makes me less of a Christian I don't think Jesus meant it that way I think you're right and I think we should be gentle in how we talk about it but I do think that um, there are some areas uh, where there's some ambiguity in how we should proceed. One of the reasons we made our language apparent here is because I saw less of a need for that in this particular area. So there are certain things that I wouldn't budge on. An example would be, uh, no, I'll, I'll, I'll make my mark regarding being an anti-racist church. And no, I won't compromise that belief to include uh, I guess racists, right? I'm not that. I don't know how. To, I don't know how to work that out, right? And I feel similarly about the issue at hand here. You know, there are others that are less, uh, that are open to more interpretation, right? So I want to be generous, ecumenical, but I do think there is value in making your yes a yes. Um, and quite frankly, that's kind of where we are we're now. You know, um, I probably can't satisfy everybody, and I won't be the church for every. I, we won't. We won't be the church for every person, and we're not trying to be. Um, this might not be the best fit for you, you know. I can probably recommend you one if, that, if that's the case, you know. Uh, but we're being moved by, uh, by the Spirit, not just, um, not just trying to figure out how to get as many butts and seats as possible, you know, and just making it, you know. I'm not that interested in making the mashed potatoes plain just so you can eat something, you know. My kids don't even eat mashed potatoes, by the way. It's just that's a side point. <laughs> There's no great need. Just thinking back to what Charles was saying too, like I, almost in, in response to it, I also would just encourage seeking out relationships with people who maybe are like gay Christians. Like I think that that's going to give you a lot of uh, insight of what we're seeking is education and um, compassion and figuring out what experiences are like for other people. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I get further your own understanding of what their experiences are like, that being able to take that into any kind of movement and tell people who might have other questions, if that makes sense. Not about being right or wrong, because I don't think that this is a right or wrong kind of conversation as much as it's more about um, like actual compassion and understanding of other does that make sense? Yes, yes. And our goal in writing the Proverbs was to be inclusive, to extend honor, to expand who was included and ha who had the image of God. But again, we were careful not to be prescriptive about the path that LGBT folks should take. There's a lot of choices and options for them as they decide what to do. And the church isn't trying to guide you very specifically in how to do that as if there is only one right way. So we wanted to have a careful approach to that too because we're not just trying to prescribe behavior all the time. And by the way, the New Testament isn't really trying to prescribe behavior all the time either. Right? That's not the movement of, uh, of Jesus either. Um, but that doesn't mean our belief isn't without consequence. All right. This, this, is, this is a stimulating subject, so you might have more questions about that, or you might want, want to talk about something else. Any more? Andrea. Um, there are a lot of statistics out there about churches shrinking numbers, and I think that often means less people coming to a meeting like this. Um, I'm guessing how I come to those statistics. How relevant do you think that a meeting on a 
a great tradition of liturgy in uh, Christianity. And so um, in some ways, I'm uh, submissive to the work of the people that has preceded me. How important it is in this time and place is up for discussion. But I at least have to face this uh, consistent aspect of public worship, public sanctuary, as you were saying. So I hold on to it because of the tradition. I also hold on to it because it's a way for people to get to know us, right? People come in here and they can know Jesus and know the church, right? This is an opportunity uh, for people to connect. And I'm committed to doing it so long as it's useful to that end. That's at least my idea. I, how important is it for your spiritual life, for, for, uh, for uh, the Christian's deepening and development? I think there are a lot of ways to exercise the same spiritual disciplines that we exercise here in other venues. Um, and sometimes it would look like a little meeting, too. Um, I think being together and worshiping together is unique. I think that is important. It doesn't need to happen on Sunday evenings in these walls. Not necessarily. And that I think there's a, lot, there's a lot of ways to do it. For Circle of Hope, we've chosen a strategy of using this meeting. In part because we're strange enough. In part because we're strange enough that if we didn't have this meeting, it would be really strange. You know? So, like, this thing is a little weird as it is. So, like, it'd be nice if we at least had the appearance of being a church, you know, <laughs> so that someone knew something, you know, like a general form. Because we, we bend a lot of the rules. And so it's still fairly uh, useful in, a, in, in, in that sense. So it's, it's strategic, largely, and it's that practical. There is some theology and some discipline behind it where I can't reduce it entirely to a practical strategic mat matter. Um, and there is a tradition there that limits me from doing that, and also a pagan tradition that probably informed how it even started, right? So there's that, too. Um, so when I see the dwindling numbers nationally, I wonder, is this, is this, is this tool uh, too dull at this point? Should we try something else? Or what are we learning about how bad it is? You know, does that make sense? Andrea is the Sunday meeting coordinator, so she helps coordinate this meeting and puts a lot of time and energy into it. She isn't trying to stop doing that with that question. <laughs> Naomi. Um, <clears throat> I have several friends and family who fall under the like, high church tradition or like kind of Catholic. Oh, really? They practice confession, uh, like at least weekly, sometimes more. And they've said like that act of like saying out loud to another human brings a lot of relief and even healing. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously we're not Catholic. How can we incorporate something similar as like a regular practice? Yeah, that comes right from the book of James, where James says, "Confess your sins to each other." Right. That's where that tradition comes from. I'm not really your priest. You could talk to me about any sin you've committed. It probably is better if you talk to me about it before I smell it later because something bad happened. Then we have a proverb that says nothing should fester until the pastures can smell it. You know, like throw away your rotten black beans. You know, black beans are very perishable. Get, yeah, get rid of them. You know, we don't need to smell your stinky fridge before we know something's wrong, right? That's the idea. Confess your sins so that we don't get your stench all the time. You don't have to do it to me. You can. You can do it with your cell leader. I, I, prefer, I like doing it with my friends, with people that I trust, my spiritual friends. You know, I'll call Ben White and tell him about my, my, uh, my sins. 
Um, and then he'll tell me, he'll love me through it. You know, Usually I en end up being a little bit more condemning of myself, and I need a little help to not hate myself by the end of it. And Ben's, Ben's good for that for me. So that's Ben White is one of our pastors. He's my boy. So I, I call him a lot. Um, just sometimes, just the conversations are too long. There's no time for this. But that's, that's one thing I would do. And, and I, I think that if you commit a sin that affects a lot of people around you, you should, be, uh, you should publicly confess. That I, I probably won't put you up here to, 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 air, to tell us your sin, but I think you should call all your friends and tell them, hey, I know you know about this, and I'm sorry. And here's, how, here's what I'm doing to change it. That's how I'd face it. You know? And I'd just be honest about, yeah, here's, my, here's my weakness. You, know? you probably don't need to do that with all, all, of, all of your sins, so to speak, all the ways you've missed the mark. But some are public ones and, 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 and need a public sort of confession. You know? um, but in general, I think that a, private, uh, uh, a covenantal exchange is helpful. You know? Your spouse could be someone you talk to. Could be your cell leader, could be your friend. Um, and in general, when you do that, I think your esteem, the esteem people have in you rises. And they respect that humility. Um, especially if you have a path toward what we call repentance, where you're moving in a different direction and you have a plan and an idea for how you're going to do it. You know? And you say, I won't anymore. That's the, that's the thing. And even if you mess up, you keep, you keep going. You keep moving with God, right? Discipleship you know, is, 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 one definition for discipleship is obedience for a long time in the same direction, right? That's the idea that we're working on. Is that helpful to you? Any more you want to say about that? That's a super interesting question. Oh, no, someone besides Charles. <laughs> I talk too much. I feel like, I feel like we, uh, especially American churches, have a really... Uh, we're really big on sin, but we're not really big on understanding what it means to sin, if that makes any sense. It's more on a list. It's more prescriptive than it is descriptive. It's when you do something that isn't life-giving. So if what you're doing is diminishing life, that's the sin. Now that's a philosophical question, but that's the heart of it, right? God is, uh, God, God is giving us abundant life. And if you're countering that by giving us not abundant life, that's, that's, where, that's where the sin is. People would say missing the mark. Then you've got to know what the mark is. That's hard. We have an idea of what is uplifting and life-building, what is encouraging and brings about God's glory among us. Not doing that is sin, and it comes in a variety of ways. Um, and I think, in general, the moral arc of society has laid out some of the basics for us, too, right? Like, there isn't a lot of debate about, although th there is kind of, right? But in general, we know killing people is sinful, right? And of course, you have all these caveats because we're still kind of killers, right? We still want to figure out how to justify it. But at its heart, if any, if any of you killed me right now, that would be bad, right? <laughs> um, so we basically, I, th I think that... <laughs> She thinks it would have been. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but so we have some basics too. So I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't deconstruct it too much. But I would say what isn't life-giving. That's I'm quoting a Dr. Uh, Donald Brash on that one. You don't know who that is because he was my uh, professor in my rinky-dink seminary. But 
I at least had to give you the, the uh, you know, the footnote there. I would just add that um, I think if you need to be wise who you confess to. Um, you were saying uh, spiritual friends or something like that. I forget what you said. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Um, someone that you completely trust that will get on their knees and pray for you sure. rather than get on the phone and spread it around. Because um, that's not life-giving either. That's like dimension. Oh, yeah. yeah. So just Gossip know. and defamation shouldn't follow. Right. Be aware of your audience. <laughs> this is my cousin, by the way. Who should confess his sins to me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Any more? Maybe one or two more, then we have to move on. Scott sees. So, um, kind of bouncing off a couple of what other people said, um, I think we're all pretty aware that, like, right now, we're in a really particularly poisonous, like, political moment in this country. And I find, like, it, I used to be able to have political discussions with people who disagree with me in a life giving way, in an affirming way, where we both kind of disagree, but you learn about something and you grow from it. And I'm finding that harder and harder to do. And I find that the more times I see political discussions come up, it's just poisonous throughout. It's just awful. Um, I don't know if you have any insight into how do you navigate that kind of issue. Well, I do it fairly poorly, so you're asking the wrong guy, um, to be honest. But the reason that it's poisonous is because morality has become a partisan matter. Okay? That's what that, and that's, that's what I really think that we used to have partisanship and then we used to have a basis for morality. Social construction, this is, this is, the, uh, this is the most uh, evil fruit of social construction that we find, right? Postmodern thought was important because it dissected and deconstructed power structures largely that came out of modernist and post-enlightenment Europe, right? When that same tool is used to deconstruct the very people that, that, that were empowered through it, we enter a period of moral relativism that's dangerous. Because when partisan, when morality becomes partisan, the discussion becomes more heated. Right? We can have a civil discussion about, for example, whether the Fed should increase or decrease interest rates by a quarter point or by a half point, right? Personally, I, I get really into it. So I think some of that is a moral issue, but like, because I have an opinion about how uh, macroeconomics works. Why do I have an opinion about that? I don't know, but I do. Question, no one asked, yes. We have a video cast that the pastors uh, pastors have it's someone asked someone asked this question like much like you are doing Andrea and the leaders at North Broad have suggested I start one called no one asked <laughs> so that's that's the reference there no one asked about the Fed's interest rates <laughs> so yes there were some issues that were that were largely political you know we're talking about uh, uh, policy issues uh, geopolitical matters that you know there was there was some there was some civil discourse that we could have when it becomes too moral, too rooted in morality, it's, it's hard to do that. And, and, and then you have a decision to make as a follower of Jesus. Are you trying to rally the people that agree with you to, to build a movement for good, right? Do you want to be an activist? That's why activists can be loud, is because they're trying to, they're trying to corral the troops 
You know, get us all together, get us all marching, we're all moving. You know, you're not going to change your mind on a protest. That's not the point of it. The point of it is to demonstrate, to, to heighten your voice, demonstrate your power, and show people, hey, we have, a, we, have a, we have a mobilized group of people, and we need to be listened to. You're being loud, right? You're being memetic, right? That's what memes are. You know, internet memes, it comes from the idea that something moves quickly. Right? That's the, uh, that's the movement there. It's not just image macro where you have big font on picture. Right? Although those are funny. Right? You know the, the anime guy with the, with, the, with the butterfly? That's a real good one right now. You know? Isn't he an anime guy? Isn't that the made in Japan? Right? He's always asking, is this thing? And then it's the butterfly something. It's really funny. I don't know. I love it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, we'll flood the listserv tomorrow with these memes. <laughs> Keep it PG-13. Okay, that's the level that we can handle. Now, so you want to you build a, mem a mimetic movement with a protest. On the other hand, quietude, right? You're trying to convince somebody. How, how, do, I get, how, do, I, how do I help someone follow where I am? has to be someone I trust, someone who's going to listen to me, and we're in a dialogue. And so you use quietudes rather than loud memes. Right? Organizing versus convincing. And I think Jesus uses both, right? And I'll tell you how. Matthew 23, when he's saying, Woe, woe are you, scribes and, uh, scribes and lawyers. Uh, what does he say? Pharisees? Pharisees and uh, scribes and Pharisees, right? That's what he says. Woe is you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You know, you converted. Uh, you converted your son and made him twice. You converted this man and made him twice the son of the devil that you are. Something barbaric. Jesus is saying they're not. I mean, he's at his wits' end at that point. The people that are that are criticizing him are trying to kill him, and he's just lamenting this. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to uh, to uh, to uh, bring you under me like a like a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't listen, right? He is lamenting and he's protesting in a sense, crying out to God. It's a very loud moment of condemnation for his killers, right? Who are supposed to be his friends, but they killed him, right? There's your, there's your loud mimetic protest. But then you have John 3, right? My professor calls uh, Nicodemus Nick at night, right? Because he comes to Jesus at night. I really love that. This high, this Pharisee again, who comes to Jesus at night. He's on, he's on the, the ruling council, and Jesus is going to have a little dialogue, right? It's quieter. And he has to keep it quiet, because Nicodemus is, in, is talking to a dude he shouldn't be talking to, right? And then in John 4, you have Jesus at the well, right, with a woman doing some more quiet, convincing, talking to the Pharisee, and he talks to this uh, woman that he really had no business talking to, and he convinces her, right? Quietudes and loud memes both have a purpose. I generally won't try to convince somebody that I don't have a good faith relationship with. If you're just going to be a troll, I don't want to talk to you. You know, if you're just, I don't, I don't need to be triggered by your, by your, by, by some, it's too, it's too much, you know, like I, I can't, you know, it's, it's, it's just too, uh, as I say, too stimulating for me. So you'll have to earn the, we'll, we'll have to have a good faith relationship if we're going to discuss nuance. And I think that goes for the LGBT question too, right? When you're talking to people, you're looking for a good faith relationship. You're not always trying to fight, you know. I get a little hot when, like, I have someone defending, like, a dude that killed journalists a day ago. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to really get in. This is really a partisan issue for me, right? We're just saying it's, it's wrong, and that's, and that's where we are right now. 
no, you shouldn't take parents, kids from their parents, right? This is just basic. I, I, I will not make that a partisan matter. There are some things that I will. I mean, immigration policy can even be a political matter, right? But there's a certain line where it isn't anymore. And there's a pr the, the Christians cannot lose their prophetic voice right now. And that doesn't mean that your prophecy is captured by partisanship. It is not. You know, because, uh, you know, Booker won't save you either. But you can't, lose, you can't lose your nerve in this moment, right? And too much of that has happened in history too frequently, too often by Christians who, who because of their commitment to love, let evil creep up and manifest itself in its most heinous expressions ever, right? Racialized chattel slavery in the history of this country, right? Nazi Germany in another case. Christians ushered those things in some ways into their fullness. And thank God Christians also combated those things too. You know, there were some faithful few that did that. And they were the few, you know. And we look to, uh, we look to Harriet Tubman. We look to Dietrich Bonhoeffer and say, no, those are the prophets that we're going to follow. And no one would ever reduce their issues to a partisan matter, and certainly not in history. You wouldn't say that about Martin Luther King either. But they did about King during the Civil Rights Movement. Ronald Reagan called him a rabble rouser after he got killed. So just to give you a, uh, a, 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 some, some awareness of how hostile this is. So you will receive some of that, you know. Again, this isn't about partisanship and it's not about politics. It's about morality. If you think that your partisan, your, your politics is the, is the rod by which all morals should be measured, you're wrong, right? So a little humility goes a long way. Um, and that's, that's uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm talking to myself too about that. But, you know, I think that the reason you feel like it's poisonous is because you know bad things are happening. And it's hard to talk about those things in a civil way. Um, so that's a very long answer to your question. That's one I think about a lot. Any more? Yeah, Nathan. This is a totally different subject, but I did some reading up about this thing called the Jesus Seminar that happened like 10 years ago. Are you familiar with it, and or do you have an opinion on it? Were we just talking about it? Uh, I think accidentally, yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Give me some definition. I actually don't know quite about it. He didn't oh. mention it once. Uh, okay. Gosh, well, bummer. Uh, there was basically a bunch of historians and like general top people in their professions having to do with um, uh, archaeology. They were answering the question of the historical Jesus and the historicity of Jesus. The Gospels and decided what they think is. Jesus definitely said, was most likely to say, and what he might not have said. Um, and uh, so I was curious to know um, what you thought about a process like that. I like thinking about those things. Um, I have opinions about them too. right? The historicity of Jesus, the question of the historical Jesus, often juxtaposed to what we might call the Christ of faith. right? At this point, most historians think Jesus was a real person, right? And if you're beyond that and you don't think Jesus was real, we essentially think you're a fringe-style person, right? The discussion that these 
professors and others are having are trying to figure out, well, what did he actually do? What were the things that we, that, that, that we know for sure that he said? What, what, what are the authentic sayings of Jesus? I think that kind of speculation is interesting. And it can be illuminating, and it can be helpful. It has limited use in liturgy, but it has some academic use. It's largely rooted in speculation. And I think academic, academics are often far too certain about things that, you, things that you just can't be certain about. You know? And on the other hand, I think fundamentalists are too certain about things you can't be certain about either. You know? But now we're talking about this. So I, 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 I'm not, my faith isn't threatened by those things, you know, because my faith is rooted in a different sort of experiential. Uh, I was saying this last night at the Phillies game, right? Uh, it, um, these are the conversations I have at the Phillies game in 100 degrees. <laughs> my faith is rooted in experiential epistemology, right? I know things because of how I experience them. Um, what we know about the Gospels is that they are the, uh, the, 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 the primary source that we have about who Jesus is. That's a good thing for Christians, and, that's, and, and it's good for us to use them in that way. Um, there are spe- questions about um, authorship and historicity um, that I think uh, can, can be helpful, um, but they're not fundamentally helpful or exclusively helpful. Taking that conversation and combining it with a bunch of other conversations that are happening now and have happened through history is my approach. I like the kind of cornucopia um, way of thinking about it, a kaleidoscope of ideas, and not even perspectives, but even um, um, disciplines. You know, I think sometimes academics with the Bible distance themselves from the text, and I can do this too because I'm an academic person, because they might fear what an existential encounter with the text looks like. You remove yourself from the test and start asking all these hypothetical academic questions that, uh, that um, protect you from the encounter with the text that you can have. Now, this isn't, this isn't just about the Bible. You can do this with any piece of literature, right? I'll give you one example. I know I'm going over. You know who does this? Star Wars fans. Star Wars nerds do this. What they do is they watch a movie and then they write about how much it sucked, right? The one thing Star Wars fans can agree on is hating Star Wars. That's their main interest. And they watch Solo, for example, and then they start criticizing it. Or they, what were they doing to that actress in, uh, in The Last Jedi? They mocked her until she deleted her Instagram account? Yeah, don't do that also. To, don't, do, don't do that to Star Wars and don't do that to the Bible. Right? You, you can be too into it and then distance yourself from the existential encounter you have with both the Bible and the solo movie. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think that's part of the thing. Have the encounter and see what happens. You should also do that with other texts, too. You know, I don't hold other texts as high as I hold the Bible, but even when I read, um, you know, uh, uh, Shakespeare, for example. You know, I want to have an existential encounter, and I don't want to just dissect it into its uh, scientific, technical bits. You know, Greek professors do this, but you, mo- you lose some of the art of the Bible, and you lose even some of the literary form of the text when you do that, right? Uh, there is, I like the mystery of the Bible. I'm reading this, this book called God of the Oppressed by James Cone, right? Chapter 6, Who is Jesus to Us Today? I recommend you just find that PDF 
or take the book out from the library and just read chapter six. Because what he says is that oppressed people aren't concerned with these matters of speculation because you need a degree of privilege in order to even have this matter. This is an existential experience for us, and God has been comforting this group of oppressed black people, he's a black liberation theologian, for, uh, for centuries. You know? And so they don't ask your highfalutin questions because they're, they're irrelevant to them. You know? They're not fundamentalists in the sense that they uh, um, talk about inspiration and infallibility all the time. They talk about relatability. They talk about reliability. Right? This text has meaning in, in its history and in the tradition for the black community, and therefore it has value because of that, and it doesn't really matter what a bunch of European professors are saying about it. You know, like what, what does that have to do with me? You know, so there's a contextual element too, to the, to, to the idea. And this is, uh, this is, this is uh, what a James Cone, rest in peace, brother, would say. And I, I appreciated that perspective. In fact, in a chapter I read today, so that was a, that was a good question. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.